Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. Page number 972, if you're going to use one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. At the same time, I need you to also turn to Acts chapter 9. And everyone is going to need a Bible for this today. Acts 9 is page uh, number 917, if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. While you're turning, let me just remind you that here in your bulletin are some questions that are designed to either help you reflect on what we learned today or to prepare you for next Sunday. So make sure you are taking advantage of that uh, each week. Also, while you're turning, for those of you who are newer, perhaps haven't been through a book study with us, let me just quickly give an explanation as to what we're about to do here, uh, because we will do it repeatedly in the book of Galatians as we have repeatedly done it in the past. Uh, I had a professor once in college who had a saying that it would do you well to memorize or learn or just have some vague knowledge of for the future, and it was this, that a text without a context becomes a pretext for pretty much anything you want it to be. In other words, if I take any text of scripture and I pull it out of its context, then I can use that piece of scripture for really whatever I want. I saw an interesting example of that uh, this week. I was watching PBS because I am a dork, and I was watching an interview with Bono, and I don't even know what they were talking about now. I just uh, remember that Bono was trying to make a point about uh, the, how terrible poverty is and, and how much we need to take care of the poor, and in doing so, he completely butchered the words of Jesus and uh, took something Jesus said and completely divorced it from the context of, I don't know, maybe the rest of the New Testament. And it was terrible, and I just sit there and cringe watching it. But it was a good ex example of this, that a text without a context can become a pretext for pretty much anything you want. And so in an attempt for me to keep our context together as we are working through uh, passages of Scripture, I will oftentimes read entire sections of text, even if we're not going to go through all of it on a particular Sunday, just so you can see that all of it goes together. And you're going to get your first example of that this morning here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. We're going to read from Galatians 1, verse 11, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. And then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. 
Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who through Peter, who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Jesus, we just ask your blessing on this time. May you take this. May we be good students, be faithful students, comparing Scripture to Scripture, understanding what you have for us here. And then may you take that and use it in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I must be talking about TV a lot here recently. A couple weeks ago, or was it last week, actually? It was last week that I mentioned Columbo uh, to you all, and I got accosted in the hallway afterwards because in, um, in my comments, I said that nobody under the age of 25 would remember Columbo, and then I was told that nobody under the age of like 35 would remember Columbo, and even some of them didn't. However, I have another television show for you today. Uh, this one was from 1952 to 1961, so there's not going to be many people in the room who know this one, but there will be probably a few. It was a show called This Is Your Life. It aired on NBC. And the premise of the show was very simple. They would bring a guest onto the show, uh, normally just an ordinary guy or girl, sometimes a celebrity. And the premise of the show is that they would do a synopsis of that person's life generally by bringing in people from their background or from their past to tell stories about them. So, you know, they bring in a kindergarten teacher who would tell a story about you when you, when you were young, and they bring in someone who was in the army, and you bring in someone who was a co-worker, a long-lost friend, that kind of thing. And generally speaking, if I understand the premise of the show correctly, it was a surprise or supposed to be a surprise for the guest in question. I don't know how they kept them in the dark. Uh, this actually worked against them a couple times when some celebrities came on the show and were not pleased about being surprised by being on the show, but nonetheless, it was a big hit. People loved watching these folks come on, loved hearing their life stories, loved watching the surprise as they saw people they hadn't seen in 10, 20, 30 years. Big hit, great success. Well, I'd like to tell you that this is similar to what Paul is doing here in this section that I just read to you, that this is some kind of like, you know, misty-eyed trip down memory lane for Paul as he just reflects on all the things that he has done in his ministry and in his life. But unfortunately, that is not the case. 
As we learned last Sunday, there is a problem in the Galatian churches. Apparently, there is a group of people who are attempting to discredit Paul and his gospel in order to combine Jesus and the Old Testament law so that they can please men, so that they can make people happy, so that they can make the gospel more popular or more palatable to the people around them. And the premise I'm working off of here and that I explained to you last week is that the antagonism and the persecution that Paul and his co-workers experienced when they were there in those Galatian cities, that it didn't end the moment they left, that for the believers who remained behind, they were continuing to experience this kind of persecution at the hands most likely of the unbelieving Jewish community there in those cities, and as a result, it was causing a great deal of difficulty. And so my assumption is, is that most likely there were a group of people who claimed at least to be believers in Jesus, who probably got tired of being persecuted for this grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone gospel that Paul had preached. And so they decided to take actions into their own hands to attempt to mitigate or remove that persecution or antagonism by changing the gospel. The gospel that Paul preached, it was offensive. It was causing them problems. And so these, and from this point on, I'll just refer to them as false teachers, these false teachers decide that in order to get away from this persecution, rather than believing in and preaching a gospel that causes trouble for them, they will change the gospel and in so doing will trouble the believers. You remember this word from last week? I pointed it out to you, but didn't address it at all. Um, I think that this is part of the reason why Paul uses it. I think it's a clue as to what's going on and why it's going on here in these Galatian churches, though I think there is an even bigger clue that we will look at next Sunday. I think when you read this wording here, I think you should understand it as being just a little bit on the sarcastic side. Paul is sarcastic, particularly in the letter to the Galatians. He's like, oh, excuse me, I, I didn't realize that my gospel was going to cause trouble for you, so why don't you go ahead and feel free to change it so that you can trouble all the believers who, who stay behind? That's, that's totally fine. I, Paul, Paul is sarcastic. He's got a funny sense of humor, and you're going to see that several times here in this book. Now, in terms of strategy about how they went about changing the gospel, I also indicated to you that apparently in order to change the gospel, they felt that the best and most helpful and most necessary thing to do was for them to discredit Paul himself. You know, think about the, this is only logical, as I said, if Paul is who and what he says he is. If he is an apostle who has received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ, then his gospel stands. But if he is not an apostle, or if the gospel he's preaching perhaps is not received from Jesus, maybe he heard it from someone else, and maybe he's interpreted it, or he's, he's adapted it a little bit for his current setting, then, then maybe that gospel can be called into question. So they must have attacked him pretty hard because as you see here, starting in chapter 11 of verse 1 and going all the way through at least chapter 2, verse 10, Paul is defending himself and the origins of his gospel in a way that is absolutely unlike anything you see in any of his other letters. It's kind of like a biography. It's kind of like he's giving us a walkthrough of his life but let's be very clear about this. It is not a complete biography. It is not a complete walkthrough. It is extremely selective. And the reason why it is so selective is because it is not intended to be, as I said earlier, just a, 
a misty-eyed trip down memory lane for Paul as he sort of reflects on the past ministry he's experienced. It's not that at all. It is intended to be a component of a larger plan on his part to defend himself and then, by extension, the gospel, the authority of the gospel he preaches. And so what you're going to see as we work through this section is a weird mix of information. On the one hand, you're going to have a lot of information that's biographical in nature, details, chronology, I did this, I did that, I went here, I went there. I did. So you're going to have a lot of this, but, but mixed into that are a whole bunch of these pointed comments and loaded statements that seem designed to address things that are going on there in Galatia. And of course, this is what we're going to be in working through this morning. Now, um, I've struggled all week trying to come up with the best way to present this to you. On the one hand, there was a part of me that was kind of concerned about spending a lot of time in the chronology and the biography part of this because that's easy to get bogged down in and and almost feel like you're drowning in it. But, but at the same time, it's really helpful because, one, it's inspired, so we need to address that. Number two, it is a critical part of Paul's overall argument here, what he has done, where he has gone, who he's talked to, etc. And then number three is actually really kind of interesting. If you can get into that, you can kind of get your nerd hat on and, and get into the details, I think it's kind of fun to work through in and of itself. However, on the other hand, the real value and the meat of this material is found in all those pointed comments and those loaded statements, theological statements that he kind of peppers throughout this. And it would be nice to pull all of that together and just look at that as a whole. And so here is what I have decided to do. We're going to take both today and next Sunday to simply walk through the chronology walk through the sort of biographical material here to make sure we understand that and to make sure we, we get what Paul is talking about and how all of that information fits into the book of Acts because it's really quite helpful and becomes quite important to his overall point. And then uh, the Sunday after that, we'll walk through that same material a second time, but this time we'll draw out all of those little pointed comments and those little loaded statements and put them together to see what it does to help us understand the nature of this new gospel that is being preached here in Galatia. Okay, does that make sense? Everybody understand the general game plan I've got here? All right, let's begin then by walking through the chronology that Paul lays out for us here in these verses. Uh, as you can see, Paul begins telling his story by laying out for us what his goal is in telling the story. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants to make sure that his readers understand that his gospel has absolutely zero human origin. Zero. Nothing at all. It's not from him, as if he just made it up himself. It's not from some other group of people, as if he heard it and is just sort of passing it on. Uh, he wasn't taught this gospel. You don't go into his office and there's like gospel university class of whatever, and he got a degree in gospel there. His gospel came to him directly from the resurrected Jesus. And in this sense, then, you can already begin seeing him lay out uh, the true authority behind the gospel he preached. He is not ultimately the authority, though he will defend his own authority in this book. Uh, no other individual or group is the authority. Jesus himself is the one and only true authority. So this is his goal. Uh, this is why he's going to tell the story. It's not just to defend himself, though he is doing that. 
It is to back up this claim that the gospel he preached to them is none other than the one and only true gospel of Jesus Christ himself. And so he starts where any good story starts, right, at the very beginning, because that is a very good place to start. Sing of that later today. Uh, he begins by informing them of his pre-conversion life. As you see here in verses 1, 13, 14, he emphasizes two specific details. First, he makes it clear that before his conversion, he was a dedicated, committed follower of Judaism. Uh, he describes himself here as advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. Uh, he describes himself as being extremely zealous for what he calls the traditions of my fathers. Now, as you look in the book of Acts, you don't really get a lot of information about Paul's life before conversion, but he talks about it here and there. For example, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, you get, you get the picture that Paul was pretty hardcore about Judaism. He sort of lays out his credentials point by point. Uh, he's circumcised on the eighth day, which means that his parents are really observant Old Testament Jews. They follow Old Testament law from the moment he's born, so he's never been out of compliance. Uh, when it comes to the people, of, he's of the people of Israel. That means he's one of Abraham's children. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. There were 10 tribes that were unfaithful to Yahweh. Two tribes remained faithful. Judah and Benjamin are those two tribes. He's one of the faithful tribes, so that's a good, good sign for him. Uh, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He personifies the religious and cultural life that would have been idealized by Israel in that day. Uh, as to the law, he is a Pharisee. Does that ring a bell from Mark for any of us? He's a Pharisee. He's part of that uh, conservative religious sect that is directly behind the execution of Jesus. He, he, he carries that card. That's his party. And as you see at the very end of verse 6, when it came to the righteousness that could be found under the law, Paul would have considered himself to be blameless as a good Pharisee. He's checking the boxes every day, making sure that he's keeping everything in line. So he, he sees himself as being uh, 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 blameless. And that's why I think he says this comment here that he's zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And then as you learn here, not only is he all of these things, but he is also a rising star within the Pharise Pharisaical movement. So he's probably not in any way involved in the deliberations to have Jesus executed, but he is most likely known by the people who are involved. You know, he, he's, a, he's a top prospect, if you want to think of it that way. You know, he's, the, he's one of the ones they're scouting. He, everybody's looking at Paul. He had advanced beyond many of his own age within the movement. His point here is going to be that if you want to debate the finer points of Old Testament theology with me and how that combines <laughs> with the gospel, I'm no slouch. I know it. I, not only do I know it better than most of you, I've lived it better than most of you, Paul says to them effectively. And so he gets this. He's, he's ready to go with it. Second, he makes it clear that before his conversion, he was a persecutor of the church, which of course mirrors what we saw just a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 7 and 8. So I won't repeat all of that now. His point is simply that he is not a person who has some long history of, of being sympathetic to other movements or maybe being okay with what Christianity was teaching. He was hardcore into the Old Testament. He was a hardcore Pharisee. He was against Christianity, violently so. And so if we're going to start to build a, a sort of a timeline of sorts between Galatians and the book of Acts, it's going to look something like this. We'll see that what Paul describes here in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, matches up perfectly with what we see about him in Acts chapter 7 and 8, or, or a passage like Philippians 3. The two of them come together nicely. This is who he was before conversion. But of course, we all know 
something changed, right? In verse 15 here in Galatians and part of verse 16, Paul very briefly mentions his conversion that we read about just two weeks ago in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 19. Again, since I just reviewed this, I'm not going to repeat it all other than to point out two details that just stand out here interesting to me. Notice here in Galatians 1.16, he specifically references the Father revealing the Son to him. So this is how he viewed that moment on the Damascus Road where he's blinded by the light and he hears the voice of Jesus. He sees that as God the Father revealing God the Son to him. Notice also his reference to him being chosen to preach Jesus among the Gentiles. Was that not the very thing that Jesus said to Ananias when Ananias was afraid to go find Paul? Hey, listen, go. He is a chosen vessel of mine. He's going to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Paul references that here. And so again, back to the timeline. This is really easy to correlate, is it not? His conversion here in in, um, Acts chapter 9 matches up perfectly with what we see in Galatians 1, 15, and 16. So up to this point, putting all of these things together has been super easy. But now, Notice this next component. This is where you're going to need to be looking at your Bible here in Acts in just a second. He says that after his conversion, he did not immediately consult with anyone. Specifically, he says, he did not go to Jerusalem to see the apostles. Instead, he goes off to Arabia, which is kind of west of the Jordan area, west of what would be considered the land of Israel. And then later he returns to Damascus. Now you've got your Bibles open. Look at Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 25, and find that reference or find some connection there. You seeing it? No? You see here, according to the way Luke records this story, he stays in Damascus for many days, right? He preaches until he's forced to leave Damascus due to a death threat. But if you look at verse 26, Luke just jumps right ahead to his time in Jerusalem. In fact, the way it's written here makes it sound as if he goes directly from Damascus to Jerusalem immediately following his uh, conversion. Well, I would ju- you say, what's going on here? I don't, I don't understand why it's recorded differently. Well, just remember for a moment that Luke, as a historian, very similar to, to Paul, is only including the information that's helpful to him and what his purpose is for writing. So he's either going to include or exclude information to meet his need, and he will weave his story together around that. And apparently, Paul's time in Arabia and what he describes there in Galatians 1 is not critical to to Luke's account. He doesn't care about that time. He just kind of jumps right ahead to when he goes into Jerusalem. And so the question we have to ask ourselves as good students, and I'm trying somewhat, just if I could pause and throw in an extra comment here, I'm trying somewhat to show you what it looks like to do good biblical thinking and put together passages of Scripture to make it all work so that you have a model for when you're doing this on your own. Back to this, the question we're having to ask ourselves is, Is Luke describing here in Acts 9 Paul's first time in Damascus, Paul's second time in Damascus, or is he just blending the two events into one? It could be any of the three, and we have no way of knowing because you could do any of those in the ancient world, and no one would have thought anything of that. What we can say, though, is that we can correlate Galatians 1, 16, and 17 with Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 25. We just have to remember when we read Acts 9 that there's actually a gap of time in there that Luke just simply doesn't record. It doesn't doesn't fit his purpose, and that's totally fine. And you'll really see this gap when you see the next component here in Galatians. In Galatians 1.18, 
Paul tells us that after three years, he finally visits Jerusalem, and specifically Peter, whom he calls Cephas here, because Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name. He visits Jerusalem, he visits Peter for 15 days. Now, before I can correlate all of this with us, um, I want to stop and just help you think through time markers in general, because this sometimes becomes confusing for us when we're reading the book of Acts, or we're reading New Testament letters, because sometimes things are recorded a different way. It's confusing because in Paul's day, Jews could reckon time in one of two different ways. They could either reckon time using what I would call a starting point system. So in a starting point system, I pick one point that's kind of like my foundation, my basis for the story, and then everything I tell you from that point on, on is going to be related back to my starting point. So I'll tell you about the point, and then I'll say, well, after three years, I did this, and then after six years, I did this, and after nine years, I did this, and after 12 years, I did this. Well, if you add that up, that's what, like 30 years total if we were to put them in a line, straight line? But when I use this method of timekeeping, I'm never putting them in a straight line. I'm always saying back from my starting point, three years after that point, six years, nine, 12. So that whole time period, however I word it, it only covered 12 years, even though it may have sounded like more to our Western ears. That's one way they could tell time. A second way they could tell time would be more similar to ours. It would be a continuum of time system where each time marker builds off whatever came before it. So I'll tell you about this event, and after three years, there was another event, and after three years, there was another event, and after three years, there was another event. You see, it just keeps moving along down the road. That's how we think. That's how we read and tell stories, etc. Here in Galatians 1, most likely, we think Paul is using the starting point system, not the continuum of time system, but the starting point system to tell his story with the starting point being the moment of his conversion. And so what that means then for me is I read this as being three years after his conversion, not three years after he goes back to Damascus, that would be the difference, okay? Three years after his conversion, he goes to Jerusalem. Now I want you to look in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 29, because this seems to be the same visit that Luke records. So take a moment just to look through Acts 9, 26 to 29. I'll give you a second to quickly skim it. You got a sense of what's going on there in Acts 9? I hope so, because there's a couple of issues we need to address. (coughs) Notice behind me here in Galatians, Paul says that he went to visit Peter, and then he adds this statement, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now that verse creates a little bit of a conundrum for us as students as we're trying to to understand everything and compare it in Acts. Because as you look in Acts chapter 9 verses 26 to 29, Luke tells us that Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles, plural, and declared to them, plural, how Paul had seen the Lord. He then says Paul spent uh, some amount of time going in and out among them, the apostles at Jerusalem, preaching. Luke's account doesn't make it sound as if Peter is the one and only apostle that he saw during that visit, does it? Uh, Even it doesn't make it sound like Peter and James are the only ones he may have seen. It sounds like a larger group of apostles in Acts, but verse 19 is not making it sound that way. Second, speaking of James, since when was James, the half-brother of Jesus, an apostle? 
Now, it's been a while since we've been in Mark, so I know most of you have probably forgotten this, but remember in the Gospels, we do learn a little bit about the family, the earthly family of Jesus. After Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary get married, and they have a family. They have a children. In Mark chapter 6, uh, Jesus is back in Nazareth, and he's preaching, and there's this group of people who, who hear him preaching, and after hearing him, they ask this question, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary, which is sort of a jab at Jesus, because normally you'd be the son of the father, son of Joseph, but they're making reference to his questionable birth here. Is he not the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So that means that after Jesus is born, Joseph and Mary have four sons and at least two daughters, maybe three, four, this is plural, we don't know how many, but there's at least a family of seven kids, if not more. And James is one of these half-brothers. And as you look through the rest of the Gospels and read everything we can find, which is very limited, about him, you see that while Jesus is alive, James and his other brothers as well are unconvinced of his Messiahship. They don't believe in him. But, but apparently sometime after his resurrection, they do believe in him. At least James does, and Judas apparently as well. James not only becomes a believer, but by Acts chapter 15, he now seems to be a person of some influence within the, the church there in Jerusalem. He goes on even to write our book of James in the New Testament. James and Jude are both written by some of the, these, two of these half-brothers of Jesus. But in all of that information, we're never told about James becoming an apostle. So what gives here? Well, uh, there's a couple of explanations. I'll give you a less likely one first, and then I'll give you a more likely one second. The less likely one has to do with the meaning of the Greek word brother here. Now, this is a very simple word. It works almost exactly like our English word brother works. Its most normal and common meaning would refer to someone's literal brother, a person who shared a parent, one or more parents, right? So if I use our family as an example, I would say that Nathaniel is Hannah's brother. The two of them share a parent, in this case, two parents, okay? So he is her brother. Many of you would have brothers in this sense, right? So that's its most common and normal usage. However, just like in English, the word can be used in more than that way. For example, it can refer to close relatives who are not literal brothers. So if I go back to our family as an example, Nathaniel has a cousin who is five days older than him. His name is Andrew, and the two of them have basically grown up together. So they're cousins who are five days apart in age. They are brothers, that's how they've almost grown up and lived. Some of you have family members who are cousins, whatever, nieces, nephews, whatever the case may be, and you're so close to those people, they're more like a brother or a sister to you than they are a cousin or whatever the case may be. And you see this word, Greek word, used that way to refer to very close relatives. The other way it can be used is one you will be very familiar with. It is used to refer to people who are very close for other reasons, not because they're related, just because they have something in common. And what's one of the most common examples of that in the New Testament? People who have Jesus in common. They often refer to one another as brothers. We saw Paul do that in the opening of this letter when he said, I and the brothers who are with me write to you, the churches of Galatia. There you go. He's using the word brother, same word here, in that close way. So our question is, is there another James in Jesus's life that would fall into one or both of these two categories? And the answer to that question is yes. As I have argued in the past on multiple occasions, there is a very high probability. If I had to give it a, a percentage, I'd give it 
95 to 99.99% in my own mind. The only reason I don't go 100 is because the scriptures don't blatantly say what I'm about to say, but I think it's a very high probability that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, are cousins of Jesus, related on his mother's side. I think there's a very clear argument for that presented in the New Testament. And so if that is the case, then this James here could very likely be James, the son of Zebedee, cousin of Jesus, otherwise brother. But even if I'm wrong about that, and he doesn't, he's not a relative, uh, that same James is also a part of the little band called the Inner Circle. Remember them? Peter, James, and John, those three disciples who got to be with Jesus. At times, none of the other disciples got to be with him. They got to see and hear things that no one else got to hear. So he was a very close friend of Jesus as well. So one way or the other, he could fall into either of those categories. Either way, he could be called the brother of the Lord, even if he is James, the son of Zebedee. And of course, that would solve our problem because James is an apostle. Now, is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. But I don't think it's our most likely scenario. I think there is a more likely explanation available, and it has to do with how we translate verse 19 here. You see, verse 19 is a little bit tricky to translate because there's a word that modifies another word, and depending on which way you modify it, it changes the meaning of the sentence completely. As you can see here in the ESV, it sounds as if Paul is saying that apart from Peter, who was clearly an apostle, he didn't see any of the other apostles except for James, who then Paul is making equal with the apostles. But let me replace this sentence with a different translation and see, see how this sounds for us. Other than the apostles, I saw no one, or no one of significance, you can understand that as meaning, except for James, the Lord's brother. So I'll put it back. This is how the ESV translated the sentence. Same Greek words, same underlying text. Here is the alternate translation. Which one's right? I think this one is. I like it for three reasons. Number one, it's a completely legitimate translation of the same Greek text. Number two, it definitely fits within one of Paul's larger points here in the book of Galatians right now specifically as he's writing this material. In chapter two, did you notice all the times he mentioned the people who were of influence? I didn't, their influence doesn't matter to me. I didn't, he's wanting to make it clear to them that he didn't have any, hardly any contact with the people of influence and what influence or what contact he did have with them, they supported his gospel James is a person of influence, even if he's not an apostle. He is a leader within the Jerusalem church, and so it would make sense at this point that he mentions him in this way. And then number three, it now makes perfect sense with what Luke records in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 29. And so I am personally very comfortable with that. And so if I add this now to our timeline, this is where we find ourselves at. Here's first visit in Jerusalem, Galatians 1, 16, uh, excuse me, 18 to 20 in the passage here in Acts. Let's do one more section, and then we'll pause until next week. The next detail, last one we're going to look at today, is given here in Galatians 1.21, and that is that after his visit to Jerusalem, Paul goes out into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. You say, well, where is that? Well, if I go back to our map that we've been using the last few weeks, you'll see that both Syria and Cilicia are at that bend where the Mediterranean Sea turns south from modern-day Turkey down toward modern-day Syria. And the two major cities that you and I would be familiar with from our Bible study in the past would be the city of Tarsus and the city of Antioch. Well, now look back in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. 
And what do you see Luke referring to there? The same thing, right? That Paul is then brought down to Caesarea and he's sent off to Tarsus. Where's Tarsus? It's here in Cilicia. So he's going out to these regions. And now as you compare the next few verses between both of those passages, you get the sense that everything seems to calm down just a bit. Here in Galatians, Paul says that he's still unknown at this point in person to the churches of Judea. So he hadn't been out and about in the region of Judea preaching Christ yet. They're just simply hearing that the guy who used to persecute them is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they gave glory to God because of that. If you look now at Acts chapter 9, verse 31 in front of you, Luke says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. In both Galatians and Acts, you get the sense that things are good, and our timelines now at this point match up perfectly. Okay, you follow all of that? That was a lot of material. Way to go. Now, we're going to stop here for today, but I want to leave us with a thought as you go. You know, again, why is Paul walking through all of this with the Galatians? Is is it because he thought, man, I bet there is nothing more this church would like to do than to get into all the nitty-gritty details of my travel itinerary? And I bet there is nothing more that that believers throughout the rest of time would want to do than to sit down and study out in detail all the nitty-gritty components of my travels. Is that his plan? No, no. As I've tried to make it very clear already, Paul is doing all of this, walking through this path of information with us for a very specific purpose, and that is to defend the truthfulness of the gospel. His personal story it's just, a, it's just a piece of that. It's just a component. And yet it reminds us that, like Paul, our personal stories cannot be divorced from our own gospel presentations and proclamations as well. You know, as we proclaim the gospel to those around us, our life story, our, our, the way we live, it needs to match up with what we say we believe. Can you imagine for a moment, had Paul's life and Paul's story not backed up what he said, he claimed to be an apostle, he claimed to have received his gospel directly from Jesus, had that story been proven false, then the false teachers would have had no problem whatsoever going into the Galatian churches and destroying the gospel there. They would have destroyed it. Paul, he's a liar. You can't believe Paul. He said this about himself. That's not true. He doesn't, he, none of the, his story matches up with his, his message, his life. They would have completely ruined it. But thankfully, as you see today, as you'll see more in the weeks ahead, his life does match his message. He can defend the gospel by telling, simply, honestly telling his own story. Well, you know, how about your life? If we were to play a variation of the game I mentioned at the beginning, you know, this is your life, but I did it gospel edition. Are there people we could bring up here from your life who could say, oh yeah, I totally know him or her. They, they believe, they live out what they believe. Would you have a long line of people ready to give credence to that? Or would you have some people who are like, well, you know, 20 years ago, I know that he or she, they believe what, or they lived out what they believe. I, I haven't seen it in a while though. Have any coworkers who could be able to show up and say, oh yeah, he's totally different. Any neighbors who would be like, yeah, something's, something's different with her. Any friends, any relatives, would people be able to say, I know what she believes and she lives it? Or would they say, yeah, I've heard he goes to church, but quite frankly, he lives, looks, talks, acts exactly like the rest of us, and therefore I don't really know. What would the case be in your life? I hope and pray 
that our lives match our message. I hope and pray that we can proclaim and defend the gospel at least in part by simply honestly telling people our own story. I am not suggesting that our own story is on par with the gospel. Absolutely not. That's not my point at all. But what I am suggesting is that our story should be able to be used as a means of defending the truth of the gospel. Our story should at least be a part of that. And so until next week, would you bow your heads with me? We pray that to God that he will help us to live lives that are that way. Jesus, I, I come to you now as we're pausing here in our study of Galatians and just being reminded of the fact that Paul's life story mattered to his defense of the gospel. And we are no different. Our life stories matter as well. What we, how we live should match what we say. How we live and carry on day to day with the people around us, it should show that something is different. It should be a part of our defense of the gospel. It should, it should at least give people reason to ask us for the hope that's in us. It should allow us then to, to tell them what you've done in our lives. And if our lives aren't there, then, then something's seriously wrong. Then the gospel itself is in question because of our sinfulness and our unfaithfulness. And we don't want that to be the case. And so I pray that you will help all of us to live our lives in such a way that we can use our own personal stories to defend the truthfulness of the gospel, to proclaim it to the people around us so that you then can be glorified because of what you've done in us. We give the glory to you knowing none of our story is our own. Our calling, our life, our going out, it all rests upon your grace and is ultimately brings us peace through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.